invite you to take your Bible and go with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, if you're looking at the Bible there in your seat next to you, I believe it's page 951, just to give you a little help today. And I hope that you feel well rested this morning, am I right? Ready to roll? Yeah, I'm so thankful for some of you and your commitment to the Lord in our church. We're here an hour early, ready for worship today. So kind of you. I saw on social media, many of you have probably seen it as well, but said this is a preacher's favorite Sunday because I get an extra hour to preach. So uh, that's not the case. I promise you it won't be the case, but uh, so thankful you're here and excited to continue our series, His Word and His Ways, as we're studying the life of Jesus through the book of John. And before we dig in today, I just want to give you a quick heads up, uh, an awareness. Uh, just learned early this morning uh, that Lonnie Stewart, our longtime uh, music minister here at First West, passed away. And uh, it's been a long journey for, for Sue and for their family. And so we're just heartbroken to hear that news. Uh, but I can tell you in the times that I've been with Lonnie over these last couple of months, just hearing him uh, just continue to testify to God's goodness, his love for, uh, for the Lord, his family, and for our church. And uh, so just invite you to be praying for the Stewart family in, in these days. Uh, just uh, that's a man that has had immeasurable kingdom impact, and many lives in this church and this community have been touched by his life. And so uh, we'll be celebrating his life uh, here this week, and we'll get word out to our church when that's going to happen. But just want to invite you to be praying for that family that has been so central to who we are as a church uh, over the last hundred years. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, what? one of the things that I learned in parenthood is there is a moment when your child is, gets to a certain age where they start just doing things that are just adorable, right? And, and one of those things is one of the first times when, when they're playing with a toy or something they've got, and, and, and you go to help them, and they say, I can do it. You're like, oh, man, that's awesome. They're going to be a rocket scientist, right? Like, they already, right, have the drive and the, the understanding, the self-determination, I can do it, right? But what you know is that over time, what once started as cute and adorable turns completely frustrating, doesn't it? Right? Every little thing, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. And it's like, no, you can't reach that light switch. You're two feet tall, right? No, I can do it, I can do it, right? And what's amazing is that that, that, that attitude continues into adulthood. Right, wives in here, you know that moment where your husband was trying to install something in the house, and it had gotten to that point, and you're like, listen, let's just call one of your friends that does this for a living, right? Uh, let, let's just call an expert. Nope, I've got this, right? When you're headed to a friend's house, right, for, for, for some type of wedding shower, right, and you're running late, and it's, hey, let's just look it up on Google again. I know this street is tricky and how we get there, but nope, I've got this. Right, you're running late to work, thick fog on the roads, hard to see, and you're going as fast as you can. Why? Because I got this, right? It's that attitude of self-determination that in many ways can be a significant positive in our lives. But what about in the most crucial aspect of your life? How does self-determination and drive how does that impact your relationship with God? Well, to answer that question, Jesus actually performed a miraculous sign that John records here in John chapter 9 to address that specific issue. If you remember in this series, we've, we've tried to be clear week by week that, that in John's gospel in chapter 20, he made it very abundant abundantly clear to us what he was trying to accomplish in writing this gospel. And he says in John chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus performed many other signs, 
and the presence of disciples are not written, but that he has written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have life. And so once again, we see John going back to another sign. This is the sixth of the seven signs that he gives us. And in this sign, he's going to leverage this sign to teach a point. Many of you in here are familiar with parables. We could talk about all the different parables in the Bible. And, and many of you know that a parable, that is an earthly story with a heavenly purpose, right? That Jesus would tell a story, leveraging something in their culture at their time to, to teach a spiritual truth. Well, in a sense, what Jesus is going to do in John chapter 9 here is he's going to teach a spiritual truth, but he's not going to do it by telling a story. He's going to do it in a miraculous act. And that act is healing the man who was born blind. So I want to invite you to stand today as we are going to read uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. And we stand in the honor, the authority, under the authority of God's word today to see this moment that John records for us. It says, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after he said these things, he spit on the ground and made some mud from the saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before, had seen before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. Others were saying, No, but he looks like the man. He kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. Let's pray. Spirit of God, we just ask that in this moment that you would meet us right where we're at. And God, would we, in your grace, allow ourselves to see the emptiness of this world, the deceitfulness of our flesh, and at the same time, the truth, the life-changing truth that is found only in you. And so God, whatever obstacles are in our hearts today, Lord, I'm asking that by your grace you would allow us to overcome those to hear all that you have for us. Create in us, God, a humble posture at this moment to receive, Lord, your truth. And that would we trust you and love you in such a way that we would obey whatever you're calling us to. So we give you this time. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. So in John chapter 9, Jesus does this miraculous event here that is going to teach a deeper truth. And so we're going to work through chapter 9 for most of our time. We're going to be in verse 1 through 12 because there is something for us to see here in 1 through 12 that I think is significantly applicable for your life. 
So there's an there's a overarching truth that John is teaching here, but there's also some application points along the way that will meet you wherever you're at in your life today. Uh, the first one is uh, uh, just to understand that his purpose is greater than our need. His purpose is greater than our need. Uh, this moment that we find here in John chapter 9, this picks up after some time has unfolded from the previous chapters. If you remember in the last couple of weeks, uh, we, we've seen Jesus in the temple. He's been, he's been teaching during the Feast of Tabernacles. If you were here last week, you remember in the Court of Women, they would, they would have these massive towers with candelabras on top that would light up the community for, for, for this week as they were celebrating this feast. And in that place is where he said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me, me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? He, he made that testament. But now we find ourselves in chapter 9. We don't know how long it's gone by. We don't know exactly uh, where they're located. We just know that as Jesus is passing by, it says, and I love this, he saw a man. And when we look through the scriptures, we find many times in the gospels where Jesus just so happens in the midst of a crowd to see one should be a great encouragement for you today if you find yourself today just longing for a touch from God. He sees you. He sees your need. He sees your hurt. He sees the desire of your heart. He knows today. And so he sees this man as he's passing by. He sees him, and it says that he is blind from birth. John records this, and I think Jesus chooses this man intentionally because it signifies that this is a man of complete blindness. This is not something that happened in an accident, something that has developed over time, but he is born in complete blindness. And in this moment, the disciples pose a theological question. Now, I want us to applaud the disciples in this moment that they are wanting to filter what they're experiencing in their lives from a theological perspective. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. Right? As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, one of the things that should be happening is we are always filtering life through, what does God say about this? How does this impact his kingdom? What does this mean for me as a Christ follower, right? It's, it's finding the realities of life and looking at them through a theological lens. And that's exactly what the disciples do here. They, they're turning it into a theological discussion. But here's what I want you to realize is that while we applaud them for thinking theologically in this moment, it seems that the thought that they're putting forward here stems from a misunderstanding in their culture of the relationship between sin and suffering. Now let's talk about that for a moment. I know you were excited to come today to talk about a, theolo <laughs> a theology of suffering. Without question, general suffering in this world can be directly connected to sin and its effects. All the suffering and the brokenness in this world in general is connected to sin. We see even in Romans 8 where it tells us that creation is yearning, it is groaning for, for Jesus to come to restore all things as they should be because all things, even creation itself, has been marred by sin. But the question that the disciples are asking of Jesus here, who sinned, this man or his parents, the question is, is uh, I think uh, a misunderstanding of tying sin to uh, the suffering of an individual, right? Thinking that because he is blind, that comes from the result of a specific sin in his life or potentially in his parents' lives. One commentator, I think, helpfully shares that, that when theologians, and we're all theologians, by the way, we all think about God, right? 
But when theologians move from generalizing statements about the origin of the human race's uh, maladies to uh, a tight connection between sin and the suffering of an individual, he said they go beyond what the scriptures teach. So yes, we can affirm that sin affects the general suffering of all of our lives and of creation itself. But when we go to a step further where we're trying to tie a specific sin to a specific type of suffering in our life, we're probably out of step with what Scripture is teaching. Now, in that same vein, I would say this. Some of us have suffered because of specific sins, and that's because of the consequences of our sinful decisions. Are you with me? Some of us know that all too well. Some of us are living in those consequences right now. There, there is no question. You can say, this suffering in my life, I, I don't have to pray at night, God, why are you allowing this to happen? I can draw a direct line from these consequences in my life because of my sinful decisions over here. But I don't think that's what the disciples are thinking of here. They're thinking almost at a deeper level. Because in their culture in that day, there was a teaching from the Jewish spiritual leaders that that, that there were these direct connects, that if there was a physical issue in your life, some other type of suffering, it was a direct result of the sin in your life. And some of you are looking at this and going, wait a second, this doesn't line up because here was a man born blind from birth, and the disciples are asking, was it this man's fault that he sinned? How can you sin in the womb? Well, a helpful point for us is that the question they pose here, was it this man or his parents? Because even the teaching and this understanding in that day was that, say, a pregnant woman would go to a pagan temple and that she would worship a false god. Uh, they would teach that if she was pregnant, that, that her sinful actions would be imputed to the child in her womb, and therefore that child may suffer the physical um, consequences of the parent's sinful actions. So you can see here, they're, they're thinking theologically, but the question and the teaching from that time that was going around didn't align with what God had revealed in his word. And so Jesus here responds, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not the cause of why this man was born blind. And Jesus goes on here in verse 3 through 5. He says, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. He said, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, if you write in your Bible, I want to encourage you to circle that word sent or, or write it in your notes, all right? We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Here's what Jesus is saying. While I'm here with you, we're going to be about God's kingdom and what he's doing. He says, night is coming when no one can work. He's pointing here to the time when he's gone. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Have we heard that before? Absolutely. What Jesus is going to do in this moment, and he is going to connect what he said in the temple about being the light of the world, and he's going to prove it in John chapter 9. What we find here in this moment is that Jesus was revealing that there was a bigger purpose at play. F.F. Bruce says it this way, that God overruled the child's blindness so that when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ. But what we find is that no matter how great this guy's need was, no matter how long he had had this need, 
that in respect to God's authority, in respect to Christ and his ability to have authority over creation, that his need was in full submission to the purposes of God. And the purpose of this healing was that it would once again reveal Jesus as the light of the world. Right? He says there, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. And so what we find is that in this moment when Jesus is going to heal the blind man, for many of us we hear that and just go, yeah, I, I know that. Jesus healed a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But, but for those that were standing there, especially the Pharisees that we're going to, we're going to see get looped into what's happening here, that the Pharisees, to think about the blind receiving sight, would have connected them to who they understood to be the character of God. Right? So last week we said, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that was a, that was a statement of divinity, connecting back to Exodus, when God said, uh, I am, right? I am who I am. So Jesus says it, but now when he's going to heal this blind man, they may think back to Psalm 146.8, which says, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. They may think of Isaiah 42, where the prophet Isaiah is recording God speaking to his people and speaking specifically to the suffering servant that would come, pointing of the Messiah who would come to rescue his people. And Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, it says, I am the Lord. I have called you for a righteous purpose, and I will hold you by my hand. He's speaking of the, sa of the Savior who would come. He says this, in order to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. So when Jesus does this miracle, yes, it's amazing that this man who was blind can now see, but it communicates loudly that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. Jesus is not just another rabbi teaching with authority, but Jesus is backing up his claims that I am the light of the world, and if anyone who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but walk in the light of life. Jesus is revealing something about his nature. He's also revealing something about his work. The significance here that this is a man that is born blind, he is completely blind, and he has no hope in and of himself. One of the unique things that we have done on the mission field as a church is we've gone to places that uh, don't enjoy the blessings and the amenities that we have. is a thing called a uh, dock in a box. And it's a thing where you can do this test where you can be in, in, in um, miles and miles and miles from civilization. And you, you yourself, as someone who's not been professionally trained, can take this and to be able to examine someone's eyes and then have a collection of eyeglasses there and people put on eyeglasses for the very first time that have never experienced it. And it is life-changing for them. But understand, in this moment, when Jesus does this, this is not him providing prescription glasses for this man. This is a man with complete blindness who has never seen a day in his life to a moment where I believe my man comes out seeing 2020. And what it shows that in complete darkness, that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who can bring true sight. You see, our needs, our needs are submitted to his purposes. And Jesus was clear in his purpose when he said, I have come not for the healthy. I haven't come for those who see well. I have come for those who are sick. I have come for those who are in darkness. I have come to heal them, not just physically. I have come, more importantly, to heal them spiritually, to see them move from spiritual death into spiritual life. 
And so the hope for us today is that the Bible teaches that we're all in sin and that sin has separated us from God and that all of us outside of the healing of Christ, we are walking in complete blindness, but that Jesus and Jesus alone, his purpose has come so that you might have sight. And what we find here is that his touch and his direction, it changes our lives. His touch and his direction changes our lives. Look at me at verse six and seven. It says, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Some of you, you're looking at that and going, what in the world, Jesus? Like, we look at these other moments in Scripture, and Jesus didn't have to do anything like that. He just healed people, right? Like people with leprosy, like, boom, they were just made clean, right? I mean... Why in the world? And honestly, for centuries, people have debated why would Jesus choose to make mud pies in the ground and to place them on the eyes of this man as a means to bring about healing? Well, I can answer that for you today in full confidence. I have no idea. (laughs) I have absolutely no idea. Some people believe that Jesus did this because the mud on his eyes would have been caked on his eyes. It would have affirmed that he had gone and actually washed in the pool of Siloam. Some believe that uh, at that time, it is true of that time, that there was a thought that saliva had a, a healing or medicinal ability. And so for him to do this and the use of saliva, which he uses that in some other healings, we see that, but not with mud. Others believe, and I would say this is probably where I would lean and why I think Jesus did that, is that when Jesus spits into the dirt, this helps connect our minds back to creation. And it tells us that God would create man from the dust. And so, in a sense, when Jesus is going to heal this man and give him his sight, it's Jesus showing what the gospel does in our life. It moves us from blindness and brokenness back into be restored as God intended. Now, we recognize that this side of heaven, we're not fully restored. But we know that we're created in the image of God, and sin has its effect on our life. But there is a day that is coming when we will be fully restored to God's design. And so it could be in this moment that Jesus is just showing the fullness of of his purpose, that he has come to seek and to save the lost and to restore them in what God has designed and desired for his creation. And so we see here this moment, we see a touch of Jesus' hand, and then we see a direction for this man to follow. And what we find is that he is obedient, right? I love this as it tells us, He told him to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam, in which John is helping his Greek speakers understand the Hebrew of Siloam here. So he gives them the understanding of what Siloam means. It means sent. This was a pool in the southwest part of the city in which uh, they would take the springs from the Gihon area, and and they would use an aqueduct, if you will, to bring the water to this pool as a place for, for bathing, for ritual bathing. And so in this place, this man goes to it, and and John pulls out for us. He doesn't want to miss that this place is called sent. John uses this word sent over and over and over again in his gospel. And we've just read it. I had you circle it, right? That Jesus was speaking here of the one who sent me. Again, it's pointing to the significance that this man's life was going to be changed only through the one who had been sent from heaven. 
And what we find here in verse 7 is that it is very succinct that it changed everything for this man. So he left, he washed, and he came back seeing. A short sentence, but it changed everything. And for some of us in here, the reality is Jesus changed our lives in a very succinct way as well. You would simply say, I recognize God loved me. I knew my sin, it hurt me. And yet Jesus saved me. It's a short statement, but it changes everything. His touch and his direction changes everything. Just as he had told this man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam, in the same way, the one who provides spiritual sight in our lives has given us instruction as well. You were to come and to bow down and confess your sin, to acknowledge Jesus is Lord, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can receive sight. His touch and his direction changes everything. And here's what happened for this man is that, that Jesus' work became his testimony. And in the same way, his work becomes our testimony. I love this in verse 8 where it says that his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Now here's what I love about this moment. Can you imagine that where this blind man had spent probably his entire life begging for his existence, can you imagine if this neighborhood had a social media page? I'm just telling you, I know what happens in my neighborhood social media page when a dog is out. I know what my, so, my neighborhood social media page looks like when someone's driving fast in the neighborhood. Y'all are with me, right? You're tracking with me? What happens when the man who sits at the front of your neighborhood every single day, and every day you drive by and you just ignore it, you convince yourself you threw a little bit in a couple of weeks ago, you convince yourself you don't have time to, sp to stop, but every single day for your entire life, that man has been sitting there. And the next thing you know, my cat is walking around. And he's probably walking around with his jaw on the floor, taking in the beauty of God's creation. And so their neighborhood social media page, it blows up. I mean, you can just see, I mean, we're reading the comment section of the post, aren't we? That's the man. No, it's not the man. No, it is the man. No, it just looks like the man. No, I'm convinced that's him. It sounds like him. He talks like it, right? Where's the man who was sitting there if that's not him, right? I mean, just over and over again. They don't know what to do with this man. So they ask him. Look at what he says here. I love this. The man called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and told me, go into Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. A man doesn't know everything, but this is what he knows. My life was changed and his name is Jesus. And so as we follow the rest of chapter 9, what we find is that he is continuing to give testimony about what Jesus has done. 
And the Pharisees, they catch wind of it because Jesus has done this on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is now working on the Sabbath and the Pharisees don't like that. And so now they're getting in, they're investigating what's happening and they pull the man's parents in and they're like, dude, don't ask us, you need to ask him. And we see three other times when he is asked what happened. Here's what he says, Jesus made me see. In fact, it gets more and more succinct every time he goes down to these four different times. And eventually it tells us in verse 34 that they threw him out of the synagogue. But over and over again, what Jesus had done in his life became his story. And listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has done more than give you physical sight. He has saved your soul for all of eternity. He has provided you an opportunity to know that to be absent from the Lord or to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He has given you the hope of heaven, the promise of heaven that you can live with every single day. But even more than that, he has come to give you life and life abundant. And he has done it. He's changed you in his grace when he didn't have to. But because his love for you and for the glory of his name, he has saved you. And so what's your testimony? Are you still convincing yourself that you don't know enough? Are you giving in to fear of, well, what if they ask a question that I don't know how to answer? But you see, for this man, he was so overwhelmed about the change he had experienced in his life, none of that mattered. He just said, man, it was Jesus. He changed me. And I hope for us that are believers in here today that we would walk in that same boldness. We would walk in that same courage and say, listen, I don't have to have it all figured out. This is what I know. I was once living in sin, living in brokenness, living without hope. I met Jesus and I realized that the creator of the whole world who's, who sits enthroned in holiness, that he looked on me a sinner and he had grace and mercy towards me and he has forgiven me of my sin and I'm not walking in shame. I'm not walking in guilt anymore. He has freed me and now my life is changed forevermore. That's what I know. And I want others to experience that same type of life change. But you see, the reality of the light is that sometimes it leads the way, but sometimes it can bring even more blindness. And that's exactly what we see unfold here in John chapter 9. Look at me in verse 30, uh, well, yeah, we'll look in 39 through 41. It tells us leading up to that, that Jesus, when he hears the man is thrown out of the synagogue, that Jesus found him. Again, it's speaking to the character of Jesus, isn't it? He saw him when he was blind. When he was cast aside, Jesus went and found him. Would you be encouraged today if you feel like this world, if you feel like your family, if you feel like your job has cast you aside? Jesus' nature is to come and to find you in that place. He found the man, and the man understood that Jesus is the Son of Man, and he bowed down and worshiped him. But then we see this moment where Jesus leverages this encounter to teach a deeper spiritual truth. Jesus says in 39, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. It says some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, well, we aren't blind too, are we? 
If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sinned. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Now, I know that can be a couple of confusing verses there, but here's what Jesus is getting to. What Jesus is showing is that he can only heal you if you acknowledge that you're blind. So he's saying to the Pharisees here, where they're asking a question, are we blind too? What Jesus is doing is while maybe they're thinking from a physical standpoint, Jesus is beginning to speak at the spiritual soul level. He's saying, Pharisees, you think you have spiritual sight. You think you have it figured out. You think in your mind when it comes to you and God, what you would say of yourself is this, I've got this. And he says, because of that, you'll never be healed. The true light eliminates spiritual darkness. And I love, as Tony Evans says, Jesus used the man's physical blindness to teach a spiritual truth. Jesus had come into the world to give spiritual sight to those who desperately acknowledge their spiritual blindness. But to those who claim to be spiritual know-it-alls, Jesus promised the judgment of becoming even more spiritually blind. And so today, here's my hope for us. Is that we would come to a place of saying, listen, there may be some things in my life that I can't say I've got this. But when it comes to my relationship with God, probably the worst thing I could say is, I've got this. Because Jesus isn't looking for the spiritual know-it-all. In fact, he told us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's the one who recognizes before God, God, I can't do this in my own strength. God, I can't do this in my power. God, I can't trust my own self-righteousness. But I want to come to you as I am and recognize that in your touch and in your direction, you can change me from the inside out to give me that hope and that future and purpose for today. Are you a spiritual know-it-all? Are you prepared to come to him poor in spirit, recognizing the difference that he and he alone can do to take us from darkness into the light? It's so fitting today that we're going to conclude our time together in this service by taking the Lord's Supper together. Because we know the, the key word in the Lord's Supper that Jesus said often, and it takes us back even to the Old Testament that we see over and over again, is the word remember, right? It's to remember Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. But you see, when we come to the Lord's table, it's more than just remembering what Jesus did. It helps us remember the need in which we had. Because when we go back and we consider and meditate on the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we remember that we were in spiritual darkness and couldn't do it on our own. So today, we're going to have the opportunity to come to the Lord's table today. And I, I pray that maybe for some of you in here today, there's never been a moment in your life where you've recognized that you are spiritually blind and you need the touch of Jesus to come and to change you from the inside out. But maybe for some of us, 
Maybe we've been a believer for some time and we like to boast in our spiritual maturity and we've been walking around with the posture of a spiritual know-it-all and we haven't been walking in humility before God. And today, in his love for you, he says, man, keep leaning on me, keep depending on me. And so here's what we're going to do in just a moment. In fact, I'm going to invite those that are preparing to distribute the elements today to go ahead and make their way forward as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today. And I'll say we're doing this uh, one of two ways today. It's up to you. We're going to pass the traditional elements today. It's been a while since we've done that, but we wanted to do that. But also today, if you have some concern about doing that for one reason or another, you'll see in the seat uh, in front of you uh, that there are some of the uh, prepackaged elements. You can take either one, doesn't matter. But several things the Bible says very clearly about the Lord's Supper. Number one, it says the Lord's Supper is to be taken by those that have professed faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you've never professed Jesus today, we want to invite you to take more than the Lord's Supper today. We want to invite you to take Jesus And so, in fact, here in a moment, as these men, as they distribute the elements, we're going to have some of our ministers. They're going to be down here. They're going to be here, available for you or even in the the balcony. They'll be on the landing up there in the balcony. Because if you need Christ today or you need prayer today, as the elements are being distributed, you just come forward and talk to a minister, and we'll pray with you right there in this moment. But number one is to be taken by believers. Number two is to be taken with full reverency. And so as the elements are passed, I want you to hear me. This is not just a time to distribute elements, but this is a time for you to draw an imaginary circle around yourself and to have a personal time with you and the Lord. Ask him, Lord, would you you search my heart? Would you reveal if there's any pride in my life or any lust in my life, if there's any deceit or greed, and, and confess that to the Lord, to bring it to him, to be prepared to go to the table to take the elements. And so in a moment, as these men, as they pass the elements, I want to encourage you to serve one another. This is an opportunity for us as you're passing the elements down the rows to serve one another as you're passing it. And then uh, once we've done that, we'll continue in our time together. So I'm going to pray for us. When I say amen, you stay seated. And this is a time for you and the Lord as we distribute the elements today. God, as we come to this moment, We're thankful that you're the one that changes everything, that your touch and your direction moves us from spiritual blindness to spiritual life. And so, Father, today, as we remember your death, burial, and resurrection, we are reminded that it is you and you alone that has overcome sin and the grave. Lord, may we come to you in full honesty in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.